Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. It's easy to see why haunted houses are frightening. Most of us live in a house and we share a terror of what might happen if some unpleasant force took up residence there alongside us. Folk horror that is rooted in a particular place can also challenge our sense of feeling safe within a community. But how do you make a distant place, seen only by a minority of the population, seem scary? How do you convey the menace of such a location? How do you ensure that readers share the deep terror that the protagonist is experiencing? These are exactly the questions we will be putting to Michelle Paver in this episode. Michelle is a well-known author of the Wolf Brother series for younger readers, but she's also written three strikingly excellent horror books for adults, two of which are set in remote locations, and one of which is set somewhere a little more recognisable. Thank you for joining us, Michelle. Please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the books you've written. Thank you very much, Charlotte. And it's it's great to be with you. Um, yes, well, as you say, I, I suppose I'm probably best known for, for the Wolf Brother series, which is now nine books set in the Stone Age about a boy, a girl and a wolf battling to survive. Um, but then I think the ones we'll probably mostly be talking about tonight are um, the three, I suppose I'd call them gothic stories. The first one, uh, Dark Matter, set in the Arctic. It's 1937. And my protagonist, Jack, is, well, he hates his life. And so he jumps at the chance of joining an expedition. Um, five men, several huskies in, in Svalbard. They called it Spitsberg in North Norway. Um, and at first, everything's terrific. They set up in, in, in the midsummer sort of sunshine. But then things start to go wrong at this remote um, location. And one by one, Jack's companions are forced to leave. And so he's struggling on alone. And the polar night comes down. As winter comes on, it, it becomes dark. And it's going to be dark for months on end. And Jack is not alone. So the second one I wrote was Thin Air. Uh, again, as you said, Charlotte, it's it's set in a remote location, this time it's India, twilight of the empire, the, the Himalayas. Just think sort of pith helmets and Mallory and Irvy and that sort of thing. And my hero is um, on an expedition to climb Kanchenjunga, the scariest, um, deadliest mountain um, of them all at that stage. And they're following in the footsteps of an earlier expedition, uh, which ended in tragedy. And as we climb higher up the mountain, things start to happen that Stephen, the, the hero, can't explain. And then he finds himself alone on the mountain, only he isn't alone. And he has to ask himself, is what he's experiencing, the altitude, the thin air, or is the mountain haunted? So those two obviously have sort of all male protagonists and casts, really. And then the third one, as you said, was a rather more uh, familiar setting, Perhaps it's set in deepest Suffolk uh, in Edwardian times, 1906. My heroine, Maud, she's an upper-class Edwardian child growing up in an ancient manor house in the Fens. 
and her life is ruled by her father. He's in, intensely religious and he hates women. Um, he's secretly riddled with guilt, uh, but we don't know why. And then one day in a graveyard, he finds a, a medieval painting of devils dragging sinners into hell and his guilt starts to surface. Um, strange things start to happen. And as Maud grows up, because we follow her from sort of a child through to teenagerhood, um, her life becomes a battle of wills with her father. Is he going mad or is there really something out there in the fens? So I suppose that's a classic sort of haunted house story, really. There is always something out there in the fens. There is always something out there in the fens, absolutely. I have to say that before I uh, opened up my computer for this episode, I was going back through the books and writing all the names down and the, the dates and things like that. And I've read Dark Matter a couple of times, and I was actually raving about it with Laura Marrow the other day on, well, I say the other day, weeks ago now, on an online forum we did. Um, but when I was rereading about Thin Air, I was like, I've only read that one once, I might reread it again. And when you were saying about Wakenhurst and about Edmund's secret, I was like, yeah, I need to read that one again as well. <laughs> I just, oh, lovely. Thank I, you. <laughs> your books are so rereadable. They're excellent. And the, the, I must admit, I'm such a fan of the Huskies in Dark Matter um, and <laughs> Isaac the Husky. And when I was looking on Goodreads to catch up on what other people thought, everyone's going, I love Isaac the Husky. So uh, definitely a popular choice. I'm so glad. He, he's based on a real dog, actually. Oh, is he? Um, yes, yes. I, I did... I had a lovely day with the Huskies um, at a sort of Husky farm on Svalbard. And um, there was this one dog and he was very sort of vocal. He kept going, wow, 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 and this sort of thing. And, and he had tricks and he knew how to open the the, 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 oh, the tins. Yeah. Yes. And he, he was just great. Um, and he was, and then we, it was dark. And, and then he came with us with the guide um, as a sort of polar bear warning system, because of course his nose is brilliant. Because uh, you can't see the polar bears out there, you know, what could be, what looks like a, a sort of mound of snow could be a polar bear. But with Isaac along, well, he wasn't called Isaac, I've forgotten his real name. But um, yeah, he was based on a real dog. I'm glad people liked him. That is adorable. Um, and it also kind of leads me into my first question, which is, are these places actually real? Now, the one in Dark Matter was Gruhurken, is Gruhurken. that right? Mm. Yeah, and then I'm going to attempt the name of the mountain. No, do you know what you say the name of the mountain? <laughs> Kanchenjunga. Yeah, Kanch. Actually, mountaineers call it Kanch, so you can call it that. So are, are they actually real places that you've chosen? Yes and no is the answer. I mean, Kanchenjunga is a real mountain, very real mountain, which has killed lots of people, sadly. Um, but I did simplify it. Because in the it's a mountaineering story, and so you know they go from one camp to another and things. But you know, if you read mountaineering sort of memoirs as I have done, and I'm not very good at understanding topography. You know, one can rapidly get very lost when people talk about buttresses and this sort of thing. So I simplified it, and I just confessed in the author's note that I did. You know, um, fine. So it's it's a real mountain with its own real, and I've built in the fact that you know that certain real expeditions I've referred to them, but then I've made up certain things um, and just confessed in in the author's note. Same thing with dark matter. Svalbard is obviously a real place, and I've been there um, a couple of times in the summer and in, in midwinter in the darkness. But the actual camp where Jack and his fellow explorers camp, I made up. So um, that just gives me that leeway. Um, and similarly with Wakenhurst, you know, Wake's End, which is um, the village and then 
sorry, Wake's End is the actual manor house and Wakenhurst is the village. I made those places up, but I actually, you know, spent time splashing around in marshes in Suffolk. <laughs> um, so that gives me, a, you know, best of both worlds, I think. When it came to sort of writing about the made up place of Wake's End and the more mm. real places for um, dark matter and thin air, did you find it easier or more restrictive to write about a real place where people would go and could maybe double? Well, I don't suppose anyone's going to go to the Arctic and double check what you said, but still, you know, there is that theory um, um, compared to somewhere where it's sort of, like you said, in, in the fens, but they can't really go there and go, oh, yeah, there's the church. Oh, yeah, there's Wake's End and things like that. So which did you find was easier to write about a real place where you could go check stuff or making up completely? Um, well, you see, Wake's End wasn't made up completely. I mean, the fens are the fens and, you know, I, I made up a, a church, but it's still got recognisable 15th century features sort of thing. Um, I think the thing is, I have to use real places as the starting point for my stories because they give me ideas, uh, you know, things that I, I couldn't make up until I'm actually there. Um, so I, I have I have the... The skeleton of a of a story, probably an apt uh, metaphor <laughs> for, for gothic stories. But I have the skeleton, and I know who the protagonist is, and then I go there, and I am the protagonist in my mind. So, for example, for Dark Matter, when I was, you know, I went in the winter, and I chose a time when um, the, the moon was full, and I was staying in Longyearbyen, which is the little sort of settlement village town, I suppose. Um, but I was being Jack when I was walking around on my own in the darkness. Um, and so when, you know, the, the, the moon, it's really weird. The moon doesn't set because it's so far north up there. But then, so when it's when it's bright, you know, you can see quite well. And, and I was being Jack and thinking, oh, well, this is okay. The ghost isn't going to come. But then things happen quickly in the Arctic. And then the sort of great inky black cloud, which looked really like a hand, came over the moon and I suddenly thought, oh, wow, you know, now suddenly you're scared. So you get ideas um, from the real places, but then you're not constrained by them. So it's not a question of, oh, well, now I'm in the real world and then now I'm not. So I can't really say, well, one is easier than the other because I just mix and match. But I always have to remember that the story is king, you know, not to be constrained too much by reality. So as as I said with Kanchenjunga, if I want to move an entire giant buttress of this enormous mountain, I can. <laughs> and I can still call it Kanchenjunga. I will just mention it in the author's notes so that any mountaineers who happen to read it, and a few of them have, um, in fact, one of the people who climbed Kanchenjunga, Doug Scott, read it. And, you know, they're fine with the fact that I've moved the mountain around as long as you mention it. You know, you, you can get away with a lot that way, I think. When he read it, did he come back and go, oh, yeah, it was really creepy or or anything like that? He only wrote to me because we, we spent a wonderful, we were both at a, um, a literary festival in Orkney and uh, we talked about it and he said, oh, that sounds really good. And then so he just wrote me a, a very nice note afterwards and said, you know, I did enjoy it and I found it quite scary. Um, and we had talked that, you know, he had had some odd experiences, but as you would, because it's, you know, high altitude and who knows, maybe it's the, the thin air, <laughs> um, or maybe not. Um, so yes, there we go. <laughs> I love that. 
when it comes to these sorts of places, you know, as Charlotte said earlier, you know, not many people necessarily go and visit that far north or, or, or visit these places that are really remote. And just the thought of them, you know, when you're talking about, you know, being stuck out there and in, in the dark and, and not being able to tell if there's a polar bear, like that sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> this, you know, and I'm Australian. I mean, I grew up with all sorts of things trying to kill me. Um, well, yes, your entire flora and fauna just about by the sound of it. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. But so when you we have these settings, I mean, they, they seem like the perfect space for something like a horror story and something, but how do you keep it I suppose without going too obvious, because it it is yes, unfamiliar, yes. it'd be scary. But how do you keep that? I don't know, like making something that's kind of almost always going to be terrifying. Yes, yes. No, so, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Simmering. <laughs> um, I, it is difficult because both of the the, the two, you know, the, the 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 far north one, the polar story, and then the the mountaineering one. Those places are inherently physically threatening, um, which sounds great, but it's, it, it can actually be quite difficult when you're writing a, a ghost story um, because a physical threat like a polar bear or falling through the ice and drowning, um, well, that's all very well, but it's got nothing to do with metaphysical threat, you know, supernatural. And um, in a ghost story, I think, well, the sort of ghost story I tried to write, which is, you know, I want to scare the hell out of the reader. Um, you want the supernatural threat, the dread, to be uppermost. Um, so for that reason, although there is a polar bear in, in Dark Matter, we, you know, there isn't a scene where, you know, Jack has to face down a polar bear or something, because that sort of physical threat is not the right kind of scariness. Um, so it's, it's. I, I like the Arctic because it's a place of extremes, and that's wonderful. You've got you know endless summer, you know, to begin with in in the light, and then it's total darkness. Um, but is it and all that sort of thing? But um, the challenge for those sort of settings and the mountaineering one as well, you know, are you going to fall off the mountain or not? Is is to keep that physical threat there, but sort of in the background, or perhaps for the odd bit of action to, to, to break up the tension, but to, to, to imbue the story with supernatural dread. Uh, and, and that is, a, that is difficult. Um, I mean, to give you an example, Dark Matter, the first draft was well, sort of the first draft. It had already been through many drafts, but by the time I got to the end and had a complete typescript and I, I read it and I thought, this is going to be great. And it wasn't, it was just like a, an adventure story with a few scary bits stuck in it. It reminded me of a sort of current bun or something. It just wasn't that frightening. And so I realized that you just need little sort of grace notes or the language you use, even when you're not talking about a scary bit. Um, I think there's one bit when th th they're sailing to, to uh, Svalbard and Jack says his cabin is tiny. It's the size of a coffin, you know, now, I could have said, you know, the size of a cubby hole or something, but if you just use something a little bit more gothic, it, it just creates that sort of sense. But it's it's a difficult thing to do. Um, and in many ways, I think it's easier to write a ghost story with a familiar setting. Because then the what you what you really want to do is to get the reader to say, Oh, this could be me. 
you know, what would I do in that situation? And if the hero is halfway up one of the deadliest mountains in the Himalayas, it's less likely for the reader to say, oh, this could be me. So you've got to be, you know, try to make it as realistic as possible. Um, and then often, and I have done this with both those stories, Dark Matter and Thin Air, very unfamiliar settings to most readers. So then I have the protagonist as a newcomer. You know, Jack is new to the Arctic. So his experiences in Dark Matter are any normal readers, probably. Um, Stephen is a reasonable mountaineer, but he's not terrific. Uh, and he's also a doctor, so he's a little bit more grounded in the kind of reality we can perhaps follow. Um, so there are those sort of authorial tricks that you can you can use. I find that very interesting um, that you found it trickier working mm. in you know with a setting that is so remote because you know you you'd think that its sheer unknowableness mm. would contribute kind of quite a lot of the the, the sense of peril or the sense of the the creepiness. Um, so because you've just touched on this, you know, to, mm. to flip this over and you, you said that, you know, perhaps taking a familiar place and, and making that unfamiliar and frightening. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you go about that? Is that a, a different process entirely? How, how do you, where do you start from when, when you've got a place that, you know, people know and, and people mm. have experienced personally? Well, I think there, I mean, I, with all ghost stories, the, the ones that I'm talking about, the ones I've written, um, I'm quite analytical about ghost story writing. Um, and that, there's good precedent for that because um, when I started out on Dark Matter, which was my first full-length ghost story, I read um, about how M.R. James went about it. <laughs> I thought, well, that's, you know. And he had actually read lots of other ghost stories, particularly by Sheridan Le Fanu, um, and so I thought, well, okay, if M.R. James, it was good enough for him, I will do it too. And so I reread all of M.R. James. Anyone who hasn't read him, I'm sure you have, but it's, you know, the Edwardian um, ghost story writer, probably the best in the English language, I think. Um, and so, you know, you sort of, there are certain elements like, you know, the ghost. I think to make it scary, you, the ghost has to have a reason to haunt rather than just being a sort of echo. Um, so, you know, I need to know a little bit about the ghost. Um, now, your question was all about the sort of the familiar setting. Well, to to make the haunt real, you've got to ground it in reality. So, okay, it's a familiar setting, but how can it be tweaked to make some element of it frightening? Um, to give you an example, because this is very abstract, an inanimate object, difficult to say, but inanimate object, like, for example, a chair or uh, a rucksack. Well, that was in thin air, but something inanimate. If it's doing something that it shouldn't, <laughs> like sort of moving when there wasn't someone to move it, you know, you don't see it move, but one minute it was in one corner and the next minute it's in by the door or something, that can be full of menace if you do it right. Um, so something inanimate or... <sighs> Classic example from sort of real life haunting sort of examples is sort of hearing footsteps when there there isn't anyone in the upstairs room or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say um, I saw the stage show of um, the woman in black. Oh yeah, 
And I never thought that when I went that I could be genuinely frightened. But mm. just the um, the sight of a rocking chair rocking yes. on its own with nobody yes. in it is has got the most incredible power to terrify. Well, it, it absolutely does, and and that's that's become you know the, the rocking chair, the, a ball bouncing downstairs. You know, when there's nobody at the top of the stairs, those have become almost cliche now, but they work. You know, they really do because it totally speaks, work, yeah. it speaks to us. A door creaking open, you know, when there's nobody there and, and there's no wind, those sort of things. Um, but it, it, it's so easy to say, you know, oh, yes, you just do that and it's going to make it scary. But it, it's such a, a finely balanced thing, you know, between the scary bits and the, and the normal bits. The pacing has got to be right. Um, and what for some people is very, very frightening isn't for others. Um, so, so it's it's a very delicate thing. I think I think ghost stories are among the hardest things to write, actually. Interesting that you um, mentioned M.R. James. I know that one of the things that M.R. James has said in the past is that it helps for your ghost not to have a backstory and not to be explained. But mm. I do love the fact that in Dark Matter and in Thin Air, one of the points of the your ghost story is that you do find out what the ghost is there for, um, admittedly more in thin air than you do in dark matter. And I just I just wondered if that was, you know, something that you deliberately set out to do to make it a bit more human. Because if even if we can't understand what it is being at the top of a mountain or in the Arctic, we can understand cruelty, we can understand the needs for survival. Was mm. that something that you've thought about or were you just desperate to tell the their backstories? No, I did think about it. I mean, as I said, you know, there was a lot more structure and analysis that went into writing these ghost stories. And um yeah, I had read M.R. James. I had also read what he'd written about writing ghost stories. And, and you're right. You know, he said, you know, that I think I can't remember the phrase he used, but it was something like that, that there should be a sort of flatness to the character of the protagonist, you know, um, and, and, and also the ghost. You know, we shouldn't find out too much about why the ghost haunts. But, you know, I was aware I was writing a full length story um, and I needed the, the way I set about it was actually I wrote the ghost's biography. I do that for all my main characters, particularly the protagonist. And so I thought, well, I'll just write the ghost's biography just for my own purposes, so I know why he haunts and all the rest of it. Um, and I found myself feeling sorry for him. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, well, you mustn't put too much of this in because you know I wanted it to be a frightening story. I didn't want you to sort of start feeling sorry for the ghost too much or the ghost as he'd been as a, when he was alive. But, you know, I felt that there's this constant tension when you're writing a, a full-length ghost story. Um, you don't want to irritate the reader by withholding too much, I think. Um, you don't want to, on the other hand, say too much because uncertainty is frightening. Um, and so there's a suggestion I've always thought is more, more frightening than in-your-face stuff. Uh, but I did feel as I was going on, it was very much sort of feeling my way with that. I, I sort of thought, well, I do need to actually, you know, th there's going to be a, it's going to be, I hope, a really scary story. So we do need to have an idea of why this ghost really wants these people gone. Um, but I hope I didn't include too much. Uh, so, so there's this constant tension between not irritating the reader by withholding um, and then not telling too much. 
No, I absolutely agree. And I think James can afford to say, oh, you must leave the ghost mysterious because he's got a yeah. short story and that's that's the he's point He's got of a it. short story and, and usually there's just one or two really, really horrible, scary bits yes. in, in an M.R. James story. And, and it's this wonderful, and there's lots of feeling of dread and the build-up is tremendous and how he does it is just masterful, just with his use of descriptive language. Um, and then the, the shocking bits. But with a full-length ghost story, then I think you need, I do think you need a little bit more, um, at least so far in, in the stories I've written. And certainly, while the reader may not be able to imagine what it's like to be in, like you say, the eternal dark of an Arctic winter, they can mm. imagine what it is like to be alone. It, they can imagine what it's like to be jealous yes. of your brother, even if they can't imagine what it's like to be halfway up a mountain. And I, I think like humanity, it's almost like picking up any Edwardian ghost story, any M.R. James story, and just putting it somewhere else. I think that really helps with the unfamiliar setting. It, it does. And, but having said that... Um, I'm just thinking back because, you know, I've been talking about the classic actual ghosts in, in Dark Matter and Thin Air, but I think with Wakenhurst, I've been much less detailed as to what exactly is haunting the Fens because there is a suggestion of, is it demonic? Um, but, you know, that's about as much as, as far as I go. Or is it is, is the father Edmund actually suffering a you know is he is he psychotic um, with guilt and so there you okay his backstory that's dealt with and revealed but the actual nature of whatever you know supernatural is in the fens I've really left m- much more suggested and less specified that, than either dark matter or thin air and that I think works your books. They seem to be set in the past and mm. as well as, you know, these remote places and, and so on. I mean, when it comes to now contemporary times, I mean, can we really have something this scary in the now? Because, you know, if we get lost now, I can just Google Maps my way out of it. I can call <laughs> someone, you know, I'm, I'm never really like stranded. You think? <laughs> Well, I, I, yeah. Mm, I mean, <laughs> there are. It can be just as scary. I think it could be. I mean, I, I agree with you that I think mobile phones um, would be, to me, the enemy of a ghost story. But it's not that difficult to, you know, find somewhere in this world where you don't get reception. Or, you know, if your mobile phone doesn't work, or you've lost power, um, then you can't Google Maps or anything like that, can you? So I think I mean, that, you that just in have itself to jump through a few hoops. Yeah, I feel like that in itself. Just like your phone is out of battery. That's a horror story right there. Oh, well, I think I, I think you know, to, to a digital native, it would be, wouldn't it? You know, um, I mean, I'm I'm used to being in out of the way places where I, you know, well, I've done most of my research without a mobile phone, and I, I still don't have a smartphone, so I wouldn't be able to use Google Maps. I've just got a little Nokia. But um, no, I think, I mean, it's strange. I have never written a modern ghost story, and Partly that's, you know, a sense of choice. I perhaps feel happier just writing about the past. I'm not quite sure why. But I don't think it would be too difficult. I mean, there are even parts, I should think, the underground where you can't get reception or something like that. Um, And that would be a pretty spooky place. And that's pretty modern. 
Um, so I don't think it would be too hard to find a location. But having said that, you see, there's something tradition has a part to play in ghost stories. And, you know, I talked about, I was rather dismissive of the rocking chair and the cliche and that sort of thing, but tradition is the flip side of cliche. And, and there are certain elements in a ghost story that people almost want to recognize. Um, so, you know, the idea of, for example, of don't talk to an apparition because then it might sort of follow you home or something. That's a very, very traditional, um, well-established belief. And yet if you, and, and if, if you bring it into a story, people will sort of automatically sort of think, oh, oh, look, the, the hero's just talk to the apparition, <gasps> that must mean that something bad's going to happen. And so that's working. That's where tradition is working for you. And so that might be a reason why I, I do like to set stories, even if not very far in the past. I mean, it's only sort of 1937 for Thin Air, 1935, I think, for, for Dark Matter. Um, that's not that long ago. Well, not if you're as old as I am. But uh, the idea of actually set, setting something in the present day it, it just doesn't, frankly, appeal to me, but I, I'm sure there are plenty of very excellent writers who, who would do an excellent job of, of writing a modern ghost story, just not me. You know, that raises a really interesting question about reader preconceptions and what mm. readers bring to something like a ghost story. Yeah. Because we, we've had this conversation um, in a, is a kind of parallel way when we were talking about fantasy tropes, you know, that there are so many epic fantasy tropes that readers kind of, they they expect to see in a book. And then, then it's in the author's lap as to whether, you know, they subvert those tropes openly or whether they honour them or they reinvent them. Um, is there a similar, have you experienced a similar thing with with ghost stories, you know, and how readers kind of, expe- the, the, the triggers that readers expect to, to discover in a ghost story? Well, I don't know about the triggers, actually, because I tend not to get that sort of response. But I think you you realise that if some things work, you know, if you, there is a scary rucksack in thin air, and quite a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, I've never looked at my rucksack in the same way again." <laughs> you know, um, and so that's the sort of idea of the inanimate object moving, which is is something that has been done before. Um, I mean, there's you know, there's a wonderful idea, Algernon Blackwood. I'm sure you probably know him, and he wrote a wonderful short story called The Kit Bag. Um, which is horrible, actually, and, and very, very scary. Um, so certain triggers, yeah, I mean, the use of darkness itself, you know, that that's one of the big ones in, in ghost stories and, and dark matter in a way is just carrying it to an extreme by having this poor hero having weeks and weeks of darkness. Um, yeah, I, I think the sort of traditional ideas of using, using, um, Things that you shouldn't do, for example, like um, crossing water, can a ghost cross water, that sort of thing. Or I suppose using, you know, the use of the Bible and crucifixes and that sort of thing. Yeah, I do love the water one. Um, Garth yeah. Nix's Sabriel, yeah, he, he uses that to great effect in, in the Sabriel series. I thought that was mar- marvellous because, you know, the you have such strong images of the kind of rushing cataract and it's the only thing that's keeping the dead from, you know, the zombies from crossing. I, it's, it's really interesting what, you know, what readers bring with them to a book and how to, you know, to lever that to your advantage or... 
and and sometimes you just can't control it you know and and it's really interesting to have people's responses because sometimes they do completely identify with the the main character and other times they they don't like them or sort of think well i think he you know he deserved what he got sort of thing so you never quite know but uh, um but they all seem to be very keen on on not killing the animals you know so because i actually oh, yes. did intend to kill the dog in dark matter. No. I that, yes, I was going to kill the dog. And I thought, you oh. see, I would have had your reaction. I would have thought that's tragic, you know, and I thought, well, that's good, you know, because that's what you want in the, you know, the ending. But then it occurred to me that maybe, maybe killing the dog wasn't quite tragic enough. And so I sort of, that's why Isaac lived to fight another day. I do find it a strange paradox that horror readers will happily really read about child ghosts that have come back after a terrible life and will haunt people in, in the house. But if you try and kill off a, a dog or a cat or some kind of cute animal, it's like, yeah. And I think also, you know, a lot of readers have pets and one is always trying to get back to this thing of it could be me because that's where the fear comes in. You know, if you're reading, if if the protagonist's response is similar to what you the readers might be you know if, if you know jack jack drops his torch at one point and so he can't see you know and he's in the dark and he can't or is it the matches i can't remember but you know if you drop something in the darkness and you can't find it um we've all done that and and similarly you know if you've got a, a cat or a dog and you love it um and if you're reading about someone else's cat or dog <laughs> you know under threat shall we say um it it increases the feeling of um, this could be me. And that, I think, is what one's aiming for, because that's then going to help you make, if you can make them believe in the haunt, then you'll frighten them. And that's what we're trying to do, because fear is one of the strongest emotions. I wonder if people don't mind having children killed off, partly because it happened in the past and it's not actually seeing the child die. But more importantly, if you kill off a child and it comes back as a ghost, you know that you're pretty much dead because that child is going to, you know, have a, a real go at you and you're not going to survive to the end of the book. Whereas you don't necessarily get many vengeful cat ghosts or dog ghosts, um, I guess, unless you're Stephen King. But um, but maybe that's it. Maybe the dog or the cat dies without purpose in a book um, or without, without vengeance, whereas children generally come back and, and get their own back. Yes, I think I think the I, you're right because I mean I've explored that actually in in the Wolf Brother books that that generally you know dogs and wolves and and cats as well the animals they don't go for vengeance vengeance is a human thing you know if an animal has been hurt by say a human being um, they'll avoid that human being they won't tend to sort of creep after you and attack you because that actually doesn't make good evolutionary sense. So so I think vengeance is pretty much a human trait. Now probably someone's going to write in and say, yes, well what about baboons or something like that? Okay. Maybe, maybe um primates as well. But vengeance is is a particularly human, you know, that sort of malign I am going to get you bearing a grudge. And and I don't think animals really show that and and it's that vengeance that malice um which i think is frightening in in a ghost um and and this sort of unstoppable and and that's what you know, one wants to create as we we sort of mentioned that the first two thin thin air and and dark matter they really were very uh, i'm going to throw another like 
Megan saying there, but they're pretty sausage heavy. This is they are men all the way. They are. <laughs> yep. Meg. <laughs> and then but Wakenhurst, you actually you switch that up and you've got a, a female mm. protagonist. I mean, some of this could be, I don't know if you you know, was that deliberate choice because you you did set these in the past, they were about explorers and at the time they were men so that it would have felt odd to have a, a woman but then you know for Wagenhurst you've got the more domestic setting so a woman feels like it, within a historical context they feel more like that they could be there I mean did you feel like you you had to do that that you or did that you wanted to particularly look at a female protagonist because you hadn't I mean was there any difference as well like in writing that the, the the, the horror from a female perspective. It's really strange. Um, gender with me and the protagonist, it's never a conscious decision at the beginning. It it just happens. Um, when when the first spark of the story happens, I know what the gender of the person's going to be. Um, now, dark matter and thin air, you're quite right. Um, I'm sure there was a, the reason that, that the protagonists in both those books are male is simply that I knew from even from my limited experience at that time before I did the research that, you know, Arctic explorers in the 30s were going to be men. And that was borne out by the research. Um, similarly, mountaineering um, at the beginning of the century, it was largely male. There were some women ex- uh, mountaineers, but not many. So, so, you know, if you wrote, included one, it would be sort of, then it would be about that rather than about the haunt. Um, so those decisions largely made themselves. Wakenhurst was definitely not, oh, now I want to write about a woman because I've written about men all the time. Um, The the setting came first. I'd I'd wanted for a long time to write, um, ever since I'd been a published author, to write a full-length story about the Fens because in my very first published novel, Without Charity, which is a sort of historical romance set in Edwardian times, um, I had one, well, the heroine, her mother comes from the Fens. And so I'd done a lot of research and I thought, oh, this is fascinating. You know, all the folklore and St. Guthlac and, you know, all this sort of thing. Um, so I decided, yes, the Fens was something uh, after I'd been, you know, writing thin air and, and had a break. I thought, yes, the Fens, I, I, I want to write about the Fens. And then very immediately I thought, I just knew that the the heron, you know, that the protagonist was going to be female. I hadn't thought at the time that it was going to be a domestic setting. Um, I literally just had the fens as the setting at that stage. And I thought maybe Edwardian times. And then it it all happened really quickly, the sort of shape of the story within about three weeks. um, I picked up um, in Oxfam a secondhand copy of the book of Marjorie Kemp, which is this bizarre, I think, medieval memoir of this poor woman who was clearly, I think, um, psychologically, possibly postnatally depressed. Well, she would be. She'd had 14 children, married at 14. Um, But she's called a mystic now. And then um, I I went to this exhibition of Richard Dadd and this strange Victorian axe murderer who was also quite a great painter. And then I read about the Weniston Doom, which was this sort of painting um, which had been... (laughs) chucked out by the Victorians into the graveyard and then and then discovered in time. Um, and all these things came together 
along with some reminiscences of my mother and elderly aunt about my family and the women in my the Belgian side of my family. Um, and that's where the story came from. But the, the protagonist being a woman, um, yeah, it just sort of comes from the unconscious. And that's not something that, you know, you sort of, I don't plan it. Um, it it's that's the planning comes later when I'm trying to sort of combine all these unruly elements into into an actual story. In that, in this case, sort of a ghost story, but also more of a gothic story, I think, and a psychological one, obviously. Do you find, obviously, when you have female protagonists in in horror, there is mm. sort of that kind of trope of of making them the hysterical woman? I mean, did you? think about or or have to do anything different in the structure or the planning of the novel to to try to avoid some of those kind of negative stereotypes or stigmas? Um I didn't really. I mean I think I suppose because Maud, the heroine, I suppose because I am female, I mean this goes to an earlier part of your question which I kind of dodged, which was is there any difference in writing from a male point of view or a female point of view. Um, I, I think because Maud, I, I identify with Maud perhaps even more than I did with the male protagonists. Um, and I'm a bit of a sort of tomboy, as they used to call us, <laughs> women who climb trees and that sort of thing. Um, she, I, I was always, I don't think there's an element of this hysterical in her, although she is, you know, patronised by the, the men around her and the, the family doctor who sort of says, oh, you know, suggests a rest cure because if she's getting out of line, you know, going to go and sort of lie down for eight weeks and do nothing in a darkened room. And that was their their way of sort of making the woman um, obey, you know, submit, as it were. But, uh, I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, I, I was writing in, in the period of you know the, the Edwardian times, and so I did get quite keen on on underwear and that sort of thing because you know it was very constricting, and so I, I had wonderful history of underclothes, and and um, that was quite useful. Bringing in you know she sort of buys this corset, and it's it goes right down to the knees. You know, imagine you can hardly run, um, which she has to do at some point. Um, so I did enjoy that sort of period aspect of things, but. No, I mean, I don't actually feel there's that much of a difference between writing from a male point of view or a female point of view, um, perhaps because my protagonists are actually up against it so much that when you're really, really scared, I'm not sure there's that much of a difference, you know, if you're really terrified. You've talked a bit about sort of making things like, you know, very familiar objects terrifying mm. and and having mm. these things and and also you know you've been saying these things in terrifying places a lot of the time as well i mean is there there a point where you just get to overwhelm your reader when just there's just too much that's terrifying and we just oh. like can't get away ah oh i mean i think you've touched on a really great point because i mean i'm obviously talking about the sort of the really scary bits but I think pacing um, and change of tone is so important in a in a full length ghost story. And to take Wakenhurst as an example, I mean, a lot of it is. I mean, it starts off with Maud as a child, um, and there are no ghosts. It's just 
you know, we're, we're finding out what life is like for her growing up in this manor house where, you know, she's got her father who's incredibly religious and that's one set of rules that she's got to obey. And then there's the servants with all their superstitions, which is the, the Suffolk folklore, um, you know, leaving a dish of milk outside the back door and just in case a, a witch comes by and all these sort of things. And that's another set of rules. Um, so it's not really ghostly at that point or demonic. Um, it, and we've just got all the rules about, you know, which servants there are and, and all this sort of thing. But it's setting the scene and I hope creating a protagonist that we root for. Um, and so it sounds pretty scary, actually. That <laughs> just that level of rules, you know, living in that well, society. Yes. It's a ghost story in itself. It, it, it's it's scary, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and because you're a six year old and you don't understand, you know, and, and there are all these different rules. Um, but and and actually, some of it is would be scary to us and isn't to her. I mean, you know, some of the carvings in the, in the church, which are, you know, the seven deadly sins, she sort of quite likes. Um, because they're, they're quite fun to look at during a boring sermon and that sort of thing. Um, so there's, I think, I think one does need to have an awful lot of not scary stuff. Um, that's just sort of interesting domestic detail in that sort of thing. And actually, you know, even though the, the dark matter and thin air are, um, expeditions in out, outlying places, there's a lot of domestic detail in those. You know, what do they eat? What do they wear? Um, and the food is, you know, I mean, they did actually take up crates of champagne up to the Arctic. This is the Oxford Arctic expedition of 1930, I think 37 or something, you know, and that these sort of details are actually fun and, and they're realistic and they're quite funny. Um, and that's a relief for the reader, you know, because everybody's interested in food. I'm certainly interested in food and, you know, what kind of chocolate did they take and that sort of thing. Um and the clothes as well, very, very um, fun to talk about. And then somehow you've got to sort of weave in something or the, the build up towards um, the haunt, as it were. And I think that that I like to keep it sort of progressive, you know, to start off with as just a sort of hint of something. And then it becomes a little bit, it draws closer. But I think, you know, you're absolutely right. You can't overload too much and this is always this is always the big challenge you know and it's particularly with the climax of the book you know a good ghost story whether it's a short one or a long book as mine are you know a full-length novel there has to be a climax you know how do you make it really really frightening in I hope a realistic yet traditional way I mean um Without without being a sort of complete come down, you know, or, or you know, I can't bear it personally. If oh, it turns out the protagonist was a ghost, you know, or something, you know, that sort of sort of cheap twist. I don't like that sort of thing. I'm not a great fan of twists, actually, but that's just me. Well, we've talked about some fascinating ideas and locations and characters here, and just before we go, I wanted to ask. Are there going to be any more books in this sort of remote horror, unfamiliar, scary vein coming up? Is have you got another project on the go? I really hope so. Um, I'm going to have to be nebulous and, and suggestive here. Um, I've, I've found the pandemic has, has played havoc with my sort of writing. It's been quite difficult to concentrate. Um, you know, I'm sure everybody's had different 
difficulties and challenges and all the rest of it. But I, I really hope so. I certainly think the next thing I write will be in the Gothic vein. Um, and there are one or two things simmering that might just end up in something outlying, something in a remote location, but I, I'm not sure. We'll just have to see, but I, I sincerely hope so. Well, that would be great. I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been brilliant to talk to you, Michelle. It's been my pleasure. It really has. Thank you so much. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.